Well, it's funny because um, I actually wasn't scheduled to teach this lesson. But when an unexpected opening came up and Tiffany asked me if I could fill in, I flipped ahead to today's lesson and I laughed out loud because it's exactly what I need in my life right now. God has a way of working things out. Um, especially day four and five that's entitled Growing Old God's Way. So we'll be in Psalm 71 today, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, it was written anonymously by a man who was either uh, an old man at the time, or he was transitioning into old age, and he was having some qualms about it. The Oxford English Dictionary defines transition as the process or a period of changing from one state or condition to another. And, you know, it's in the process of letting go of the old. Um, and, but the new has not yet quite taken root in your reality or maybe even in your heart. And you feel sort of a low-grade anxiety about what's ahead. And I know we've all been there at times in our lives. Um, looking back, there have been many seasons of transition in my own life. Uh, my own adult life, starting as a young woman, uh, getting ready to leave home for the first time and going to college. And then again, when I got married and we moved across the country and I had to find a new job and new friends. And then again, as I transitioned into motherhood and especially uh, as a stay-at-home mom after working for several years. And then again, not too long ago, when our last child left home, and that empty nest felt so, um, well, it felt empty. <laughs> and, and there was a, a bit of emptiness in my soul uh, that wondered what my purpose was again. And most of you know that my husband Andy and I are in the middle of a rather large transition now. Andy passed the baton to Barry the end of January, and uh, we are on sabbatical for three months until um, Andy uh, assumes his new and rather um, undefined role as pastor at large. And it's in this in-between time, between what was and what will be, that feels a little strange. <laughs> we hardly know what to do with ourselves or how to really think about the future. Life is full of change, and therefore it's full of transition, and therefore it's full of uncertainty and anxiety at times. So what kinds of fears are cropping up in your mind today, if any? Where do you need confidence as you face the future? No matter what season of transition you may be in right now or you will face at some point down the road, we need to ask ourselves, how do I face the future confidently? rather than fearfully. So we'll be looking to Psalm 72 to answer that question for us. And I noticed as I read and reread and studied this Psalm that there are multiple references to the present, the past, and the future. And so I want us to sort of loosely structure our time this morning around those three time markers. And so first we will look um, at finding God in our present circumstances. And after that, we'll draw encouragement from reflecting on God's faithfulness in our past. And finally, we'll, we will see how we can keep a hopeful outlook on the future. And what I love about this psalm is that by the end of it, he has gone from sort of this cringing fear to all-out praise and confidence. So I want us to see how we can do that too. So let's start by reading verses 1 to 4 in Psalm 71. He writes, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. 
Let me never be put to shame. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O oh my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the evil and cruel men. So this is a lament psalm because the psalmist is in trouble and he's crying out to God. And we don't know the exact circumstances, but it sounds pretty bad, right? He's got some evil enemies after him, but I don't think that's what he's really afraid of. <laughs> Three times in this psalm, we get a glimpse of his underlying fear. In the context of the whole psalm, we understand that he has walked with God for a long time. He's told others about God's faithfulness. And in the home stretch of his life, he wants to stay the course and stay true to his faith and finish well. And I so get that. And so in the first verse, he cries out, oh my God, don't let me ever be put to shame. And then later on in verse 9, as he laments that his enemies are getting stronger and he implies that he's getting weaker, he cries out, Oh my God, do not cast me away when I'm old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. And then down in verse 18, he says, Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, until I declare your power to the next generation. The psalmist is afraid of growing old of being weak and useless even to God. He's afraid that even God won't value him as much when um, he's older, when he's not as strong or as um, young as he used to be. So I did a little research last week, which is a fancy way of saying that I Googled it. <laughs> I, I Googled the top fears of growing old in America. And I could relate to every one of them. Number one fear is being disabled. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, half of all people over 65 have at least one disability. Didn't know that. Number two is getting Alzheimer's. Yep. Number three is running out of money. Check. Four is being lonely and bored. Yep. Five is death and dying. Duh. And six is ageism. Prejudiced against seniors. It's the fear of being dismissed, overlooked, unwanted, devalued, and even targeted by those who would prey upon the elderly. No wonder women especially, but men too, are so obsessed with youth, with staying young, through all kinds of procedures and injections and creams and supplements and, and you name it. Because if we don't look old, then maybe we won't be treated like we're old right? We need to talk about this. Ageism is a real thing in our culture and in our minds, and we need to make sure it doesn't creep in to the church in any form, not towards seniors, not towards millennials who get a bad rap sometimes, not towards teenagers or any age group, including the unborn. If this psalm teaches us anything, it is that all ages from the womb to the grave are valuable and precious in God's sight, and they need to be to us too. All right, back to the psalmist. Where is he? Where did he go with his fear? Answer, he took shelter. I don't mean he ran away and hid in a cave somewhere. 
In his words, he took refuge in the protective presence of his God. That's where he is. The picture of God as a refuge is one of the most important images in the Psalms. It's a picture of divine protection, and there are many other words, pictures related to it. We often read words like rock and fortress and shield and strong tower. The imagery of God as a refuge is also closely linked to the most prominent image of God in the Psalms, and that is that God is king. He's the divine sovereign over all nations and all nature and all circumstances, and he is ruling with justice and righteousness, and he's providing protection for the people because that's what kings are supposed to do. The psalmist knows that all God has to do is give the command and help is on the way. To quote from Psalm 46 from a couple of weeks ago, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Now, I have to admit that I sometimes have a hard time understanding God as a refuge, God's protection. Because the reality is God doesn't protect us from all the evil in this world, does he? And certainly he doesn't protect us from the ravages of age. The Bible recognizes the reality that decay and death and evil are part of living life in this world, and God allows it to touch us sometimes. The psalmist is experiencing trouble, but it, it doesn't seem to rock his faith. He's not surprised that it's happening. He's been in trouble many times in his life, and so he prays, be my rock of refuge to which I can continually go. It seems to be a habit with him. He continually goes to God because life is continually hard and he knows by experience that God is continually available to him. He knows that God isn't just out there ruling the universe somewhere. He is here. He is now. He knows my name. He knows what I'm going through. And he is intimately involved in my life. Do you believe that too? Is God your first go-to place when you're afraid? Or is, to, is it to someone else or to something else? This psalm is a prayer. And I want you to notice how he prayed. He didn't ask God for help on the basis of his worthiness or strength. He didn't say, God, I've proven my worth. I've done some great things for you, so, you know, help me out now. Nope. He said in verse 2, rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Five times in this psalm, the righteousness of God is the subject of his reflections. God is righteous. That means he is good. That means he always does the right thing at the right time. And he is about setting things right in your life and in this world. And the greatest proof of that, of course, is Jesus, who said... In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And by that, I think he meant that through his life and death and resurrection, he would not only take upon himself all the sin and the decay and the death and the evil in this world, but in so doing, he would start the countdown to the next world, the final chapter of our redemption, where the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ will overcome the kingdom of this world. 
That's not just Handel's Messiah. That is the scripture's Messiah. It's the scripture's promise, and Jesus came to fulfill it. And what he started, he continues to do in and through us until he comes again. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not only associated with him, you're not just identified with him, you are united to him. You are one with him, Jesus said it, because of his spirit who lives within you. And that means that in Jesus, you are the light of the world. Jesus said it. You're the light that pushes back the darkness. You have life in you that overcomes death. You have strength in you that overcomes weakness. You have hope in you that overcomes despair. That doesn't mean you always feel confident and never afraid or never weak. You and I overcome the world one day at a time as we remind ourselves that our strength and our courage comes from God who dwells within us and in whom we take refuge again and again and again. When you feel anxious about tomorrow, the first thing you do is take refuge in God who is here, who is now, and he will be with you in all of your tomorrows. The second thing the psalmist does is to reflect. He takes a little walk with God down memory lane, and he reflects upon God's faithfulness to him in the past. Verse 5, for you have been my hope, O sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become like a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. I love this passage because it gives us some insight into his long-term relationship with God. He and God have a history together, and that history gave him hope and confidence for his future. He's saying, God, you have shown up for me all of those times in the past, and I know you're going to do it again, even though it doesn't feel like it right now, even though I can't see it right now. A couple of weeks ago, I went to visit my parents, who still live in the house that I grew up in. And one evening, I went up to my old room, and I climbed up into my old bed, and I usually read a little bit before I turn out the light, so I propped myself up on some pillows, and I found myself facing the opposite wall again, and I saw my high school senior portrait as it has hung there for the past 45 years. <laughs> yep, there it is. There it is. I was 17 and totally clueless about life. You can just see it on my face. <laughs> I was in a season of transition. I was getting ready to graduate from high school and go off to college, and I was excited about it, but I was nervous too. And as I looked at my young self, I was thinking about this psalm and the timeline we made of our lives on day four when we marked some of the ways God has shown up for us along the way. And I began to talk to my young self there on the wall. <laughs> Not out loud, I don't think, but maybe. <laughs> I just felt compelled to tell her some things from my perspective now that she so wished she could have known back then, but of course, she couldn't. 
I told her that she really doesn't need to worry, <laughs> that the things she was most worried about at 17 never happened. I told her all the beautiful things that would happen in her life and the wonderful people that God would bring into her life and the opportunities that she would have. And I told her she was going to be amazed at God's goodness and his grace. But I told her that her adult life would not be easy, that she had a lot of hard work ahead of her. I told her there would be high points when things would work out better than she ever dreamed. But there would be low points, too, when things wouldn't work out at all and something she would never understand. And I told her that between the highs and the lows, there are many, many ordinary days <laughs> that are filled with predictable routines and uninspiring chores and days when she's going to be feeling like life is passing her by and she's going to feel insignificant and insecure and, and some days when she'll be lonely. I didn't tell her specifically about some of the bad stuff like the chronic migraines and Andy's cancer. And I didn't dredge up all the stuff that I wish had never happened or the night she would cry herself to sleep. I just told her that God would use her trials to draw her nearer to himself and, and sorrow or suffering would not define her. I told her she would accomplish some things too but success would not define her either. She'll sometimes look to those things and look to other people to tell her who she is, but her hidden life with God in Christ would always be her only true and unshakable identity. Because when she's older, she'll look back on her life and see Jesus' fingerprints all over it. Pursuing her, yes. Protecting her, yes. Leading and guiding. So from where I'm sitting now, I told her, you should be very excited about starting your adult life. Not because it's going to be easy all the time, but because Jesus would be with her every step of the way. And that's what would make it meaningful and worthwhile and beautiful. Sorry. I wore this because I have a pocket in here. <laughs> Well, then I started telling her some, I started giving her some advice, telling her what to do, like I was her mother or something. And I, it got a little weird, but. <laughs> I told her, you're going to need to cultivate your relationship with God because that's going to be the most important relationship of your life. And relationships don't just happen. I told her it was in the ordinary times, not in the extreme highs and the extreme lows where most of life is lived, and that's where she's going to need to cultivate her relationship with God. Because when the extremes of life happen, she's going to need to be firmly anchored in Him already. And I told her then to stay in the Word, even when it's boring, even when she doesn't understand it, even when she's too busy to read it or too tired to take it in, I told her the Holy Spirit is going to take her feeble efforts and drive God's Word, the truths of God's Word, deep into her heart, and He will remind her of them when she needs it. And I told her to keep praying, even when she feels like no one is listening, because God is. Don't ever deny your feelings, I said, but don't... Be driven by them either, and don't rely on them to define your reality. Rely on what God says. He's with you, and he hears your prayers, every single one of them. 
So in talking to my young self, I was reminding and encouraging my older self as I looked to the years ahead. Life changes, but God doesn't. And you know, I still have so much to learn. One of the things I've learned from this psalm is that remembering who God is and what he has done in the past should naturally lead me to praise God out loud in the present moment. The psalmist said in verse 8, My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. And notice it wasn't just when, when things were going well. Praise is not about how we feel in the moment. It's not about what our circumstances look like. It's about remembering and declaring who God is no matter what. So in verses 19 to 21, we read this. Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God. You who have done great things, who, O God, is like you? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. Praise springs out of remembering and reflecting on the good times and the bad. He said, you made me see troubles, many and bitter, but you'll restore my life again. You'll bring me up again. You will comfort me once more. It's who you are. You are the righteous one who sets things right. You are the comforter and the restorer of all things good. You have done it before, God, and I know you will do it again. And I'm also learning that praise is not just for Sunday mornings. When we gather as God's people to worship, as important as that is, but praise is for all the days of the week, the ordinary days when things are rocking along just fine and, and the days when we feel scared or sad or worried. Praise is lifting up your soul to God, to the only one who can raise up joy out of sorrow, beauty out of the ashes, meaning out of the ordinary, wholeness out of brokenness, courage out of fear, good out of evil, life out of death. It's who he is. It's what he does. Declare it, my sisters. Declare it to your own soul. Declare it to one another. Declare it to the next generation. Declare it any way you can, through your words, through music, through art, any way you can. And when you do, it will change you. Prayer changes us. It changed the psalmist. It forms us more and more into the image of our victorious Christ. So as we are looking to face the future with confidence rather than fear, we first find refuge in our ever-present God. Trusting he's always at work to set things right. And secondly, we reflect on the past and we respond with praise for what he has done. Not so that we get stuck in nostalgia, but so that we can move forward into the future with hope and purpose. And that's where we turn now to the future. How does the psalmist approach his future? Well, let's read verses 14 to 18. He says, but as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness, yours alone. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. 
And even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who come. This guy is facing the future with hope. And he intends to keep on having hope because hope begets hope and praise begets praise. And he's also determined to reclaim his mission. He's not retiring, he's refiring, as we like to say. He's got a fire in his belly again. He is determined to keep God's story of salvation alive by continuing to tell the stories of God's marvelous deeds to whoever will listen, but he's setting his sights on the next generation. He knows that God is doing something in the world, and even though he's getting older, he's still part of God's plan. God is never finished with us. He has a mission for us. You may be old or young or somewhere in between, but we all need a fresh fire to burn in our bellies, don't we? Because the cares and the burdens and the busyness of life can easily quench that fire, no matter how old we are, right? The psalmist refires by reclaiming his mission. And we see this so clearly in the New Testament. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1 with this statement. He says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. And then in verses 13 and 14, he elaborates on the ministry that keeps him on fire and in the game. Paul says, It is written, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. And finally in verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Paul's ongoing renewal happened as he kept spreading the good news of Jesus Christ despite his hardships, despite persecution. Even when he was in prison, Paul wrote letters and he invited people to come see him so that he could keep telling them about Jesus. Nothing renews your inner life and restokes the fire in your belly more than reclaiming your God-given purpose. And that is to tell the next generation or whoever else God brings into your life of God's marvelous deeds. I know this is true. The times I'm most anxious about the future is when I'm the most focused on myself rather than on God and his kingdom purposes. In the context of telling the disciples not to worry about the future, what they would eat or drink or what they would wear, Jesus said, your father knows what you need. First, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. There's that word again. And all these things will be given to you as well. We also studied Psalm 67 this week, didn't we? And it's all about making God's ways known on the earth. His salvation to the nations with the vision that one day all peoples will praise God. Because they will know him. That is God's vision. That is God's mission. And so that is ours too. Ladies, we have stories to tell of God's marvelous deeds in our lives, and the nations are here in our midst, and we need to be ready to tell those stories and to pray for opportunities to do so. I know that can be scary, but you know, nothing makes you feel more alive than being scared half out of your wits. My grandchildren were in Disneyland this last week over spring break, and I so wish I could have been with them to ride the roller coasters. Because to me, 
the stark terror of that is part of the fun. It's more than half the fun. A couple of weeks ago, I went for a walk and I met my neighbor who was walking her dogs and she's someone I've gotten to know through our neighborhood potlucks and I've been praying for her to know Jesus. And we talked and we got caught up with each other and we were about to part company when she said something unusual. She said to me, you know, so-and-so, referring to the Hindu lady that lives right next door to her, she and I call you the sweet angel. Uh Uh-uh. Apparently, they've been talking about me. (laughs) And I was so, you know, sort of embarrassed and just taken aback by that that I didn't know what to say. And so I mumbled something inane like, oh, no, y'all are the sweet ones. And then I got away from her as fast as I could. (laughs) And I was... I was shaking. You know how when you leave a conversation, you go, oh, I wish I'd said this. or Why didn't I say that? Here's what I wish I had said to her. If you see any sweetness at all in me, it is because of Jesus Christ. Because because before I knew him, I felt so inadequate and so insecure, and I was so filled with self-loathing and envy of others that the only way I knew to lift myself up was to put others down. And I did it through sarcasm, not the funny kind, the ugly kind. And I hated myself even more when I hurt people, but I just couldn't seem to help myself. But one day, um, Jesus brought a new friend into my life who told me that Jesus loves me personally, that he valued me enough to die for me, and that if I would trust him, he would forgive all my sin and give me a whole new life. And I did believe, and he did give me a whole new life. If not for him, I would be the bitterest old woman she would ever not want to know. (laughs) I wish I had told that story And that's just one of my stories. God's marvelous deeds have filled my timeline as they have yours. What are your stories to tell? I'm thinking we need to spend some time not only reflecting on God's work in our lives, but rehearsing them and getting them ready to share when the opportunities present themselves because they will if we're on mission. Nothing refires us like reclaiming our mission. Sometimes we get anxious about the future, but you and I can only live in today, right? We know that, in this present moment. And God is here, and he is ever ready to help us. And as you take refuge in that thought, remember that you have a past with God that is worth reflecting upon and rehearsing and responding with praise so that you can reclaim your mission and let it launch you into the future. And tomorrow which will be a brand new today, if you start to fear again, you repeat the process. (laughs) Refuge, reflect, reclaim. Let me pray for us. Father, how grateful we are that you are our God, that you are ever present with us, that you are the righteous one who sets things right in our lives and and through our lives, You set things right in others. 
Father, help us to remember all the ways that you have been with us in the past. Let it give us hope for what we're going through now. And Lord, uh, may it launch us into our future with great hope because you are our great God. And we give you praise this morning. In Christ's name, amen.